We live in a world that is changing. The seasons change. Technologies change. Feelings change. You change your mind. You change your clothes, hopefully. The person that you looked at in the mirror this morning as you were getting ready looks very different from the person that you looked at in the mirror several years ago. Think about when you see a friend's children after being away from them for a short time. I know Sam, you testified to that, how much that the Brickerhoff's kids have changed in the last few years, four years. How much have they changed? They added two more. Added two, they added two more. So a couple of them have changed a lot. They didn't even, they, they weren't even here before. So, so we think about the way that, that people change in really a relatively short period of time. Fashion trends come and, and go and, and come back again. Morals decay. Kingdoms and nations decline and fall. And even the mountains that appear so fixed are constantly eroding. Well, last week we discussed how God is infinite and eternal. Well, this morning we're going to be examining the immutability of God. As Joshua said, that God never changes. When we think about God's immutability or the fact that God is unchangeable, that He never changes, this, this doesn't mean that He is immovable like the statue. It means that He does not change in terms of His perfections, His purposes, and His promises. God never changes. And as we'll see, there, there is really some overlap between these attributes. That God is infinitely and eternally and immutably tied together with His attributes. God is constant. He never changes for all eternity. He cannot change for the better since He is and always was perfect. And He cannot change for the worse since that would result in Him being less than perfect. <laughs> As Robert Raymond explains, God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes, as well as any one of his attributes. And the, the Hebrew word that is, is translated glory is kabod, which means heavy or weighty. We talked about that a few weeks ago. To the Hebrew mind, the person's importance it was thought of in terms of his weightiness. The Greek word that's translated glory is doxa, which comes from the... the root word meaning to think. It refers to what a person thinks about himself. It refers to his reputation. As we quoted Raymond last week, God's glory is simply and the inescapable weight of the intrinsic Godness of God. God's glory is the Godness of God. Inherent in the attributes that are essential to Him as deity. The glory of God that is the express sum total of, of all of His attributes. And for us then to glorify God means that we see the weightiness of God. And we live a life then that is, is changed in, in thought and word and deed as a result. And then this in turn helps those around us to see the glory of God as they see the glory of God transforming us. 
So let's contemplate this morning as we, as we think about the ways that, that God never changes. And as I said from the outset, God never changes in His perfections, in His purposes, and His promises. So God is immutable in His perfections. This morning we're continuing our study of the attributes of God as laid out in the Baptist Catechism. Response to the question, what is God? The Catechism responds, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Again, as we saw last week, God is eternal and immutable, and, sorry, and, and eternal and infinite in these attributes. He is also immutable or unchangeable in these attributes. He is unchanging in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and truth. Now, although we as humans possess some of these attributes, the so-called communicable attributes, in, in some limited way, in the, each member of the Trinity, each possesses these attributes infinitely and eternally and unchangeably. We'll see this morning that God is unchangeable in His being. We'll see this morning that, that God is unchangeable in His, in his wisdom and, and so on in His attributes, but I'm going to focus, with respect to His perfections, I want to focus on how the, the way that God is unchangeable in His being before moving on to the other ways that He's unchangeable. God is perfect, past, present, and future. Again, God cannot change for the better, he is always as He always was. He can never be more powerful. He can never be more holy. He can never be more righteous. He can never be more loving. He can never be more faithful. Nor can God ever be less than He was. And this has been the view of Christianity throughout history. In the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury said that all that God is, He always has been. And all that he has been, and he is, will ever be. Now, I remember when I, I first started seminary, I had to read a book of, of, of Anselm, and I thought, I'm not smart enough for seminary. But, so let me, let me just say this again, and have you just chew on it. All that God is, is always being. And all that he has been, and is, he will ever be. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. But this is the express opposite of Mormon doctrine. They believe that God was once a human being like us, and that we one day will become gods like Him. Lorenzo Snow, one of the, the Mormon prophets, famously said, As man now is, God once was. As God is now, man may be the opposite of what God's Word testifies to the, the, the eternal unchangeability of God. It's also the express opposite of pantheism, that God is everything and that God evolves just like the universe supposedly evolves. God is. God is not changing. He is not growing. He is not evolving. And as we discussed last week from Exodus, when we considered God's eternality, when God revealed His covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses, He was declaring, I am. That's what, that's what Yahweh means. It means, I am. When you see the, the word Lord in, in all capitals in, your old, in the Old Testament, that's what it's referring to. That's the... the 
the translation of, of Yahweh. It's, it's, it's the tetragrammaton. That's the, the, the four letters that make up the covenant name of God. That's When you see Lord in all capitals, that's what's being said. It's the, the highest name of God. I am that not only references God's eternality, that he has no beginning and no end, it also demonstrates his immutability. That he never changes. He, he is. He is always the same. As A.W. Tozer explains, for a moral being to change, it would be necessary that the change be in one of three directions. He must go from better to worse, or from worse to better, or granted that the moral quality remains stable, he must change within himself as from immature to mature, or from one order of being to another. It should be clear, Tozer said, that God can move in none of these directions. His perfections forever rule out any such possibility. This is clearly true of the Father, and of the eternally begotten Son, and the eternally proceeding Spirit. God is eternally self-sufficient and self-existent, so He never needs to change. He has no needs, and he never has any needs. And again, according to Tozer, need is a creature word. Need is a creature word. The eternally triune God has existed for all eternity and will exist for all eternity as completely complete and as sufficient in and of himself. Father, Son, and Spirit existed in perfect unity and love for all eternity, and will exist in perfect love for all eternity. As the triune God, He does not need anything from His creation in order to complete Himself. When Paul addressed the men of Athens at the Areopagus in Acts 17, he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though to hear this, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 24 and 25. Again, God's immutability is closely related to his eternality. God didn't suddenly come into being. He has always been and will forever be exactly as he is. In the 3rd century, Novatian said that God has no origin. And in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas referred to God as an uncaused cause. When the, the child asks the question, who made God? And it's, it's taught that, that God had no origin. Again, Tozer humbly explains, we'll find this hard to grasp since it introduces a category with which he is wholly unfamiliar and contradicts his bent towards origin-seeking so deeply ingrained in all intelligent beings, a bent that impels him to probe ever backward toward undiscovered beginnings. You understand that? When, when, when someone asks, whether it's a child or, or an atheist, facetiously, facetiously asks, who made God? They're really thinking in, in a category that, that is wholly separate and other than God. Because God is eternal. God is outside of time. So when we think of when, when evolutionists appeal to creation, they think, well, okay, well, where did that, that, first, that first enzyme, they would say, that, that, that somehow evolved into human beings 
where did that first come from? And they would have to say, well, some of them would say that aliens somehow seeded this planet. Well, you could ask, well, who made the aliens? Where did the aliens come from? Then they have to go to previous aliens. But when we think about God, the, the creator, the, the uncaused cause, then we are talking about someone, a person who is, is alien to his universe. He is outside of his universe. He never changes. Our finite minds boggle at these things. But if you want to see God's attributes, and, and here specifically his immutability, look at Christ. If you want to see the immutability of God, look at Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And likewise, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The Father is unchangeable in his being, and the Son is unchangeable in his being, and so is the Spirit unchangeable in his being. As Jesus said in John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is true of all of the attributes of God. Or Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Michael Ramsey accurately said that God is Christ-like. That in Him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. You can see this in His purposes that, that find their apex and their fulfillment in Christ and in the Gospel. So this really then takes us to the fact that God is immutable in His purposes. God is immutable in His purposes. If God is eternally immutable in His being, if He doesn't need anything from His creation, well then we need to ask, why did God create the universe? Of course, our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite mind of God, but we know this, that according to God's infinite wisdom, the creation of the universe was the best of all possible plans. God did not create the universe in order to, as we talked about earlier, did not, God did not create the universe in order to fulfill some necessity in His being. It was simply the best way for Him to glorify Himself, the best way for His glory to be manifested, and that especially in the Gospel. As God created mankind knowing perfectly that man was going to fall, he planned that he was going to send his sinless son. And that the son would be the perfect manifestation of, of, the, of the glory of God and his wisdom and his power and his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, but also of his love and his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness. So when we look at Christ, especially when we look at Christ and the cross, we most clearly see God's attributes on display. And this was the purpose for which creation was created. And this is the purpose towards which all of creation is headed for the final fulfillment of the glory of Christ when He returns to call His people home. <coughs> this is the purpose of all eternity. This is God's 
plan for all eternity. God created the universe to fulfill His unchanging purposes. You see this throughout the scriptures. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. We read earlier in Psalm 3311 that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Proverbs 19.21 is similar. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the Lord, the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We constantly have to change our plans based on the events before us, but God's plans never require revising. Isaiah 25.1 says, I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. God never has to change his purposes. God never has to change his plans. But we must acknowledge that there are passages in scripture that seem to ascribe change to God. The Bible refers to him as seeming to change his intention. And some have taken these passages and built a whole theology around them, ignoring other clear passages of Scripture. For example, open theism and process theology are heretical positions that have really gained traction in Western evangelicalism. And open theists and, and process theology, theologians essentially believe that, that God changes His mind in response to the actions of men. And so in denying God's immutability, they also deny God's omnipotence and omniscience. Open theist Greg Boyd explains the position. He says, process theology holds that God can't predetermine or foreknow with certainty anything in the distant future. Open theists rather maintain that God can and does predetermine and foreknow whatever he wants to about the future. What they're saying that, that God it has somehow limited his own omniscience. This is heresy. This is heresy. Process theologians and open theists also have a wrong view of the love of God, and so in exalting the love of God above God's other attributes, they undermine all of his attributes and create something that is less than God. They deny God's exhaustive foreknowledge, teaching that He is limited, so that He is unable to respond to the so that sorry, that He is limited, so that He is able to respond to the events and events of His creation. And I think most, if not all of us here, would would recognize that this is false teaching. But unfortunately, that attitude also easily creeps into our own thinking. That we can default in our thinking to, to think that God changes his mind. That, that we can manipulate him through our acts of obedience. Or that God is going to somehow run out of patience with us. This is a denial of who God really is. This is a, a denial of God's eternal purposes. And as we'll see, it's also a denial of God's eternal promises, that God's purposes and promises never change. 
So what do we do then when we read passages like Genesis 6, 6 and 7, that, that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth that grieved his heart, so he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. King James translates this there, it's actually a, a, an accurate translation. It says, that, and the Lord repented. The Lord repented. This is the word of God. But how do we reconcile that with, with Numbers 23-19? Uh, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Or 1 Samuel 15-29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, or is he a man that he should have regret? Well, there must be some explanation because, because Scripture never contradicts Scripture. All of Scripture is in harmony with other Scripture. That is, is the, the rule of faith. We interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So how do we explain that? That there's, there's passages that, that appear to say that God can repent or, or change his mind with passages that say that he clearly doesn't. The answer is really quite simple. That when God uses terms like that, what he's really doing is describing himself in ways that we will understand. God is the, is the infinite, immutable, eternal God. Like I explained last week, there, there are a lot of things about God that, that we can't understand. So he, in a sense, condescends to, to our terminology and to the limits of human language in order for us to be able to, to, to begin to comprehend what he is really like. Another example is the, is the way that God never sleeps. But there's passages that, that speak of God's waking. So, so when he is said to repent, like in Genesis 6, 6 and 7, what he's really doing is he's, he's showing that he responds in grief and anger over the sin of mankind. This is not a change in his character. It's not a change in his perfections or his purposes or his promises. But it's, it's a change in the way that he responds to men. That, that he is responding to what they do. But it's also under his eternal plan. This is the way that he knew he was going to respond. It's not, oh, oh what have they done now? I better, I better go to plan B. There's never any plan B with God. He declares the end from the beginning. Or similarly, in, in Jonah 3.10, he uses the same word that, that's often translated to repent when, when it speaks of, of the way that God responded to the repentance of the Ninevites. Uh, Jonah 3.10 says, God repented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If God had wanted the Ninevites to be destroyed, the Ninevites would have been destroyed. Eventually, they were destroyed. But these Ninevites repented, so God responded to the way, in the way that, that He dealt with them. He had mercy on them. And God wanted them to repent, so He sent a prophet to call them to repentance. And He worked in their hearts to give them repentance. So He's then able to have mercy on them because he decreed that he would have mercy on them. As the immutably good God, he responds to human behavior, but always in accordance with his immutable divine nature. If God doesn't respond, if God doesn't, doesn't do something to, to good or evil, then, then he is amoral. You understand? If, if God doesn't do something to, to good or evil, um, actions of, of human beings and, 
and angels, then God is, is amoral. He's neither good nor bad, but because he is the infinitely, immutably, eternally unchangeable God, he must respond in a way that is consistent with his character. Although God is completely separate and above his creation, he is not an impersonal force divorced entirely from it. He responds to his creation. As Robert Raymond says, God is not static in his immutability. He is dynamic in his immutability. It is, but his dynamic immutability in no way affects his essential nature as God. He acts but in ways that are always in accordance with his faithfulness to his eternal purposes and his eternal character. God's immutability does not mean that he does not move. As Louis Burkhoff explains in his systematic theology, God is always in action. He enters into manifold relations with man and, as it were, lives their life with them. There's a change around about him, change in the relations of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives, or action, or his promises. You need to see the picture that, the, that God responds to his creation. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Yet he is neither the author of sin, for his creatures are free to act according to their natures. So you can see God's purposes. If you, if you track through the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you, you can see God's purposes for creation, for the universe. You might have heard people say, though, that, that well, God in the Old Testament, he was angry and vengeful, but God in the New Testament is loving and forgiving. Have you heard people say that? Well, that is, is a complete failure to know and to understand who God is in either testament. He is equally loving and forgiving in the Old Testament as he is in the New He's equally angry and vengeful in the New Testament as he is in the Old. He's exactly the same God in both Testaments. We need to look at the whole counsel of God in order to determine who he really is. Again, if you want to understand who God is, consider Christ. Consider that God's plan from eternity past was to send his son to die for his bride, for the church. And again, quoting Michael Ramsey, that God is Christ-like, and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. God does show his children his unchanging love, and, and it is evident in his unchanging promises. And so as we bring this to completion, let's now look at the ways that God is immutable in His promises. To say that God is immutable in His promises is, is really, again, to say that God is faithful. That God's promises never change. And because God is faithful to His purposes and to His perfections, then his, He's never, or he's, rather, He's always faithful to fulfill His promises. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. But God is, if God is unchangeable, then, then who can, can turn him? Who, can, can, who, who can, can change what he does? 
He, what he desires, that he does. Job 23, 13. Or Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. As he said, he shall not do it, or as he spoken, and he will not fulfill it. Or Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The only hope that believing Israel had was the unchanging nature of God. The only hope that God's church has is the unfailing, unchanging nature of God. And again, if you if you look at, at the whole the whole story of the Bible, this is what is this is what is revealed that God is faithful to his promises. One of the ways that, that we describe the promises that God makes to his people is the, the word covenant. Covenant. It's a it's a it's a, a binding promise. And in, in this context, it's a binding promise that, that God makes with his people. From the time of Adam's sin. And the provision of animal skins as a covering, as a provision for, for, for the preservation of, of his people, or, or from the time of, of God's preservation of Noah and, and his family through the flood and, and the, the sacrifice that, that God made in the covenant, or that, that Noah made to God in, in Genesis 9, and the, 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 the covenant that God made with Noah, ratified and, and shown by, by, demonstrated by a rainbow. Or from the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And the command of Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then the provision of a ram in the thicket in place of his son. These are This is all demonstrating God's faithfulness to his covenant. Or the covenant that God made with Moses. In the establishment of, of the priestly sacrificial system. It all demonstrates God's faithfulness to his covenant. Likewise, the promise that, that God had made to David. When David said, I'm going to build a temple, I'm going to build a house for you, God said, oh, no, you won't, but I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to, in my faithfulness to you, I'm going to make you a house that endures forever. This is the Davidic covenant. So the oath that, 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 that God is, is faithful to his covenants is, is to remove all doubt from men, and, and this is not a conditional promise. Well, in one sense, it is a conditional promise. But it's God who fulfilled the conditions. It's God who met all the conditions of his covenant. When he made that, that covenant with, with Abraham, if, if you remember that in, 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 in Genesis 14 and 15, what did God do? He, he, put, he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then he walked in the middle. There was, there was the, the Lord himself walked in the middle between the animals that had been sacrificed. Abraham was asleep. God made his covenant with a man who was in a deep sleep. And what God was saying when, when he walked in the middle of those slain animals, what he was saying is that, that if I fail to keep this covenant, let what happened to those animals happen to me. And that's precisely what did happen. As the son was slain, for the sins of his people. This is the new covenant. This is the covenant in, in which we have received life in Christ. This is the same covenant towards which believing Israel was hoping. Not hoping in, in sacrifices of animals, but hoping that, that God would somehow pay the debt, that somehow God would fulfill his faithfulness to himself. 
Because God is faithful. What confidence this gives us. Human beings, we cannot be relied on for anything. But God can. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, Pink says, God changes not. The immutability of God appears in its most perfect beauty when viewed against the mutability of man. Against the, the changeability of man. In God there is no change possible, Tozer says. In men change is impossible to escape. Neither the man is is fixed, nor his world, but he and it are in constant flux. Each man appears for a little while to laugh and to weep, to work and to play, and then, then go to make room for those who you shall follow him in never-ending cycle. But the only thing unchangeable about us is that we change. But God never changes. Even in our faithlessness, God never changes. 2 Timothy 2, 1, 1, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's immutability ensures that he never ceases to be less than the perfect God who will always remain faithful to himself, to his decrees, and to his words. Maybe you've seen the Bay of Fundy with boats lying on their sides stranded by the 50-foot tides. Well, those massive tides are caused by the movement of the, of the earth, or rather the moon around the earth, and the movement of the earth around the sun. Our planet feels like it's, it's fixed, but it's moving at an alarming rate. At the equator, the earth is, is spinning at about 1,600 kilometers an hour. And here, at, at our latitude, you're spinning close to 1,000 kilometers an hour. The Earth is orbiting around the Sun at 110,000 kilometers an hour. The solar system is speeding through the universe at 776,000 kilometers an hour. Do you feel like you're sitting still? Have you thought about how fast you're going while you're sitting still? Similarly, your relationship with God your, ex well, your experience of your relationship with God can change at an alarming rate without you even being aware of it. Your faith wavers. Your worship of the sun waxes and wanes. Some here are flourishing in their relationship with God. And others are drifting away from Him. Some are running towards God and others are running away from Him at breakneck speed. And if you take a step back and look at your life from a distance, you can see the trajectory that your life is on, whether towards God or away from God. The change that you see in you and around you should cultivate a desire in you to grasp hold of something that is permanently fixed, to make you want to be more to something that will never move, to point you to the unchanging God. Charles Wesley wrote in a hymn, All things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. All things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. 
Your only hope is in Christ. To be anchored to the rock that never moves. And if you are anchored to Christ, yes, there will be times that, that you will drift. There might even be times when, when you try to run away from God. There will be times that you will sin dreadfully. But the overall trajectory of your life is Godward because you are grounded in His unchangeable faithfulness. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is not just an astronomical observation. Speaking of God's character, especially of His faithfulness, everything and everyone changes. Everything and everyone that is, except God. God never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's why we can, the Apostle Paul can call us in 1 Corinthians 10.31 to whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's what I, I hope you have seen this morning. That's, that's what I, I hope will, will begin to impact the way that you live your life. I want to help you think big, biblically, biblically accurate pictures of who God is so that you will be able to glorify Him in thought and word and deed and so that you will be better able to give Him the glory that is due His name. It's imperative that you have the right view of God. Your theology matters. It matters. You need to meditate on the fact that God is immutable. And as you are, as you do, you will be changed by the God who never changes. A correct understanding of the immutability of the faithfulness of God will give you hope and trials. It will help you as, as the circumstances of your, of your life change and, and drift from, from, from your perspective from good to bad and from bad to good. It will help you to be, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I know, God, that you're faithful. I know that I can trust you. I know that, that you are sovereign, that you are doing something, and that you will never do anything apart from what is in accordance with your perfections and your purposes and your promises. A correct understanding here will also give you confidence in prayer. Stephen Charnock said that what comfort would it be to have prayed to a God like that, an unchanging God, or rather what profit or comfort would it be to pray to a changing God, a chameleon who changed color at every moment. And this really, this is, is, is the, the false God that is worshipped by, by so many religions and even to, to a certain extent in the visible church. The God who changes. But as Tarnak said, who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable as to grant a petition one day and then deny it another? But you then may ask, if God's counsel has already been determined, why pray? Because God commands it. Because the same God that has ordained the ends has also ordained the means, and he has determined that he would act in response to the prayers of his saints. So we pray. 1 John 5.14 this is the confidence that we have towards Him. When we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Let's pray together.